You're listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are interested in raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. My name is Larissa. And I'm Rachel. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I have to admit, I love a good crime story. The intrigue, the people, there's just something about it all. Well, you're in luck. Today we're talking about true crime. Let's listen in as Chris Joseph speaks with Jonathan Christensen about the Edmonton-based play that Jonathan is directing about the Black Donnelly story. After I'd heard the noise downstairs, I climbed under the bed. I didn't know what else to do. And now Johnny was lying there staring right at me just five or six feet away. His eyes were as wide as saucers, and I could tell he was real scared. I started to pull myself out from under the bed to try to help him. But the blood, it was draining out of him so fast there was no saving him. And the thing is, he knew it. I could see that he knew it. I just wanted to get to him. Get him under the bed with me. But Johnny, he held up his hand. Stop me. And my bottom lips started quivering. Uncontrollably. Johnny could see I was going to start crying. So he just held his finger up to his mouth like this. And everything went real quiet. Real quiet. And still, except for the sound of Ma's old clock up on the wall, tick tock goes the clock. <laughs> Johnny! Johnny! That was actor Benjamin Wardle in a clip from Catalyst Theatre's production of Vigilante. I am sitting here with Jonathan Christensen, who is the artistic director of Catalyst Theatre and the creator of Vigilante, which is a musical about the Donnelly family from southern Ontario, which was presented in Edmonton two years ago and is now on a tour through Ontario and Saskatchewan. Thanks very much for taking some time to talk to us today. My pleasure. <laughs> and by way of full disclosure, I do need to say that uh, I am actually involved in the production as an actor just to make sure that that's clear up front. Can you just, by way of an introduction, tell us a little bit about uh, the story of the Black Donnellys and what inspired you to do a musical version of it? Uh, the Donnellys came to Canada from Ireland, County Kilkenny, in the mid-19th century. They fled Ireland at a time when there was a lot of conflict, not just between the Catholics and the Protestants, but between different sects of the Catholic community there, and came to Canada in the hopes that um, they could build a new life and start a family here and have their own house and land. And they came here, and like so many immigrants, they uh, found themselves in a place that was completely alien to them. And so it's not hard to imagine that they quickly found their way into other Irish immigrant groups and ended up in a community called Lucan. They basically squatted on some land. And at that time, the laws were a lot different uh, about that. And, um, and they started to clear the land. And uh, they ran into some conflict, not only with the, with the owner of the land, but also with other members of the community. And uh, the conflict quickly escalated and things got bad enough that eventually one night uh, community members arrived at the Donnelly home 
burst in on, on the family and murdered several of them and then set their house on fire. There was a, there was a young boy who witnessed it. He uh, was able to tell the police who actually was involved. Uh, they went through two different trials, and in the end, no one was ever convicted of the crime. Now, I know the story uh, of the Black Donnellys is very well known, certainly in some parts of Canada. It's been adapted a lot. What was your draw to the material, and why were you interested in doing a different take on it? For me, it became a story very much about, well, I guess, first of all, about the refugee experience. You know, the Donnellys really were refugees. They were fleeing a war-torn country. And then when they got here, things weren't quite all they were cracked up to be. It's a potent reminder that this country has been built by refugees. This isn't a new thing in Canada. You know, in this age that we live in, uh, where the politics of fear and hate are on the rise, when people are taking the law into their own hands because a perceived sense that the legal system is failing them, they're scary times. And this story really addresses not only some of those movements and how they were happening in smaller ways at that time, but but also the very, the very human responses that we have to situations where we perceive ourselves or our families, those we love to be under threat, or to have um, been on the receiving end of some grave injustice. So you obviously did a lot of research into, uh, you know, existing versions of the story and interpretations. And at some point you made a decision to veer away from the quote unquote factual representation of the story. What was that process like? And was it challenging for you? <laughs> well, it was it was fun in in a certain way. I mean, I spent a lot of time just researching. Um, I read all of the all of the various books that had been written about the Donnellys, and uh, I used uh, Ray Fazakis's uh, books um, very heavily. He he's a lawyer who's done extensive research into the Donnelly story, and um, so his books are like little encyclopedias. They they have tremendous density of uh, factual material documents that. That, um, that tell us a bit of the story of who the Donnellys were and what happened. The show went back to London, Ontario recently, which of course is the place where the Donnelly story took place. Can you just give some thoughts on how you think that went and how the community responded as opposed to uh, in terms of seeing that story reflected back to them in a new way? Well, I was really, I was nervous about it. The, the story was still very close for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so I anticipated there could be some real upset about uh, the particular perspective we were taking, and uh, also the fact that we were playing with historical details. But, you know, we were very clear up front that this wasn't uh, a piece that was inspired by the story and not meant to represent historical fact necessarily. That said, it was always my desire to try to be true to the spirit of what I believe happened. And um, it was a really one of the more satisfying moments for me was when the company all went to visit the Donnelly Museum in Lucan. And um, the museum was sort of uh, run by a retired Anglican priest who had been a part of that community for 50 years. And he said when he arrived there, no one could even mention the Donnelly name. No one would talk about what had happened. And this was, you know, this was 100 years after it had all happened. And, uh, and he said he, he heard many stories um, in confession and wasn't able to share many of those stories. But um, over the time that he was there, he found that things started to become easier for people to talk about. And 
at one point, one of the descendants became mayor of the community and wanted to move the community forward. And so I uh, really got that dialogue happening and was able to open the museum. And what was interesting to me was he was the very pers- kind of person that I would have expected to say, well, you know, you didn't get the facts right. And I'm not sure why you were playing with the story in that way. And he said the exact opposite. He said of all of the various treatments of the story that he'd ever encountered, and he'd I'm sure encountered most of them. He he felt this was the truest to the story of the Donnellys. And that was a really satisfying thing to hear because I, I think we have tried to be really true to what happened in that community, like the forces that were at work. I think you can get lost in the details. And and not that I think one should be careless or reckless with facts or and certainly not in a you know in this kind of like alter alternative facts kind of way. Uh, But I do think it's important sometimes to focus more on the bigger picture and the larger forces that are at play. So what do you think has been the... um the heart of the, the, the root of the longevity of the Donnelly story. Why do you think it still appeals to us 140 years later? Yeah, that's really an interesting question. I was just reading, for some reason yesterday, I was reading about uh, Lizzie Borden. So it's another uh, unsolved case, mm-hmm. uh, true crime story. We seem to be obsessed with these. Um, you know, I do think part of it is that that we have this kind of natural response when when something isn't resolved to want to resolve it. It's like uh, uh, it's like musical earworms. People say that one of the reasons people get earworms is because they they fixate on a phrase of music, but they never finish the phrase of music. And the best way to overcome it is to resolve the musical phrase, and then you can move on. And uh, I wonder whether there's something in that. You know, that we naturally, when we encounter a story that doesn't seem to have resolution, we want. We want to resolve it. We want to finish it. We keep coming back to it and trying to find this definitive answer. Uh, but of course, in, in, in many cases, we can't mm-hmm. because the documentation is gone and uh, no one can ever really know. So I think that I think that's part of part of it. But I also think it really speaks to some really primal fears that we have. Being in your home, um, sleeping is the most vulnerable place I guess we can be. So, so to so to hear a story about a family that's attacked while they're sleeping in their beds and beaten to death and and their property burnt to the ground, I think that probably gets about as close as you can get to one of our deepest fears. It also touches on our natural instincts, I think, to um, want to protect those we love. In the play that we've done, there are seven men and one woman, uh, and the and the woman is is the mother Joanna. She's very much at the center of the piece, and she is, I would argue, the most powerful character in the story, and she has the most influence over all of the other characters that we see on stage. But I wanted to show that she lived in a man's world, and that she was very isolated as a woman, and that uh, you know, I mean, she loses her husband in the story, and. Uh, she has to raise these seven boys in a very violent world. I think I, I think one of the one of the dynamics in the story then that interested me was because that because she lived in such a male world. There's something about the way men in this piece deal with their own need to be in control, to protect, to be victorious, and it's an interesting exploration of what happens when those needs are challenged. Um, what happens when a man is put in a position where he can no longer succeed in defending those whom he loves when no matter what he does his family is victimized and i think i think that aspect of the story also resonates for for men i think for women to imagine this this 
this struggle that Joanna Donnelly goes through of being left on her own to raise all of these children, um, to manage a farm, that kind of struggle I, I'm, I think people can relate to even if they've never lived it. Again, to just be confronted with a mother's loss. So it's a tradition on Shout for Libraries, permanent one. Every person we talk to, we have to ask what they would recommend that people be reading. So uh, perhaps related to the Donnellys, perhaps not. Do you have any uh, any material that Jonathan Christensen thinks that the universe should be uh, ingesting? Uh, well, I do think Ray Fazakis's book, The Donnelly Album, is uh, the most comprehensive kind of story about the Donnellys, and it and and the one that really tries to represent the complexity of what happened without taking sides. Some of the um, sort of true crime stories that have been written are pretty sensationalistic. I, I don't really recommend them, but uh, Ray Fazakis's work is tremendous. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking with me today. really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. That was Jonathan Christensen discussing his play about the Black Donnelly story with our very own Chris Joseph. If you'd like to read more about the story behind Jonathan's play, be sure to check out The Donnelly Family Album by Ray Fastcats. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR. Today, we're exploring the topic of true crime. Amanda Arbonaut sat down with Mike Eaton, a community librarian at the Jasper Place branch of the Edmonton Public Library to discuss information-seeking behaviors of the inmates he serves. Let's listen in. Uh, my name is Mike Eaton. I'm a community librarian. I work at Edmonton Public Library, Jasper Place branch. Today we're speaking specifically about true crime. So would you tell us about your work with prisons and particularly the Book Borrowing Project? Uh, in Edmonton, the Edmonton Institution for Women, which is a federal women's prison, is located in the west end of Edmonton. It's on 178th Street and about 111th Avenue. Um, it's actually within a catchment, uh, the Lois Hole Branch catchment. Um, but basically what we do is since 2011, uh, the EPL has been involved in doing what we call the book borrowing project. And what we do is we provide, EPL provides materials for, uh, library materials for the inmates in the three units there. There's th uh, three units. There's the general population, minimum security, and secure unit. Um, Jasper Place, in particular, are, is responsible for the minimum unit. So the reason I wanted to speak about this is I recently read an article about the popularity of true crime in prisons. And I wondered if that was a trend that you've noticed in the population that you serve. With the minimum unit, that I, what I've seen is um, mostly what is popular are um, uh, a lot of fiction, a lot of music, uh, AV materials. That's, the, that's really the big one uh, that's popular. As far as true crime goes, though, um, poses some interesting, um, interesting issues, uh, sometimes as far as what we're allowed to, basically what we're allowed to send in. What that means is... Um, the, the prison, of course, has the, final word, has the final say on what we're allowed to send in because, of course, uh, they're inmates. And sometimes with true crime, there are some considerations about the content. We're in, we're in an interesting position because, obviously, I mean, you know, we're, we're a public library. We're very, we're very much on the forefront of, of protecting people's in, intellectual freedom and the idea that anybody can access anything. Um, but, but that does come up against the regulations of a prison where they have, the, you know, they have their security protocols and again, they have their, their regulations. So yeah. um, there is, it, it, you know, it's, it's a bit of a back and forth where, you know, we, we, have to, we have to sort of mitigate it and say, well, okay, if, if this particular kind of material isn't allowed, then 
fine. That's fine. We will we'll find alternate materials. So it's a, it's a delicate balance sometimes keeping <laughs> keeping the piece in a place like that. Mm -hmm. um, so you know we have the most respect for for the work they do. What I find interesting about that is the true crime narrative tends to be very good guy versus bad guy, and the bad guy is the inmate. So I was curious as to how this genre became so popular with inmates to begin with, um, but you would almost think that in the prison setting that would be allowed because it sort of has that justice narrative. I mean, I mean there's different kinds of true crime. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's the... You're right. Yeah, there's the good guy, bad guy. There's also true crime that's framed more like a mystery. There's also true crime where, you know, I don't know, I like to call it outlaw true crime or something, you know, something about like Hell's Angels or something like that where there is a, a bit of a romantic notion to that. It's the, the intrigue and sort of um, glorifying crime. So I could see how that could be problematic for sure. Um, so beyond the true crime... Uh, so you said there's lots of music and fiction checked out, so obviously there's a need for entertainment, maybe distraction. Um, I know in Canada there's limitations on internet use for inmates. Do you see that impacting the borrowing at all? Like are there different information needs that the inmates tend to have? Like are they requesting any nonfiction to sort of make up for not having that Google access? Oh, definitely. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of craft materials. Um, oh. um, basically, the way it works with the minimum unit is that when um, when an inmate goes to the EIFW, they start insecure, and then after a period of time and a period of good behavior, they are upgraded to general population, and then after that, and then after a greater period of time and good behavior, then they go to minimum. So, basically, by the time somebody's gone to the minimum unit, they've they've already done a lot of work. So I think that there is a situation, I, I've, I've experienced from the people I've encountered, um, the people I see, they, you know, they're, they're, they're working on self-improvement, they're working on, they're thinking, they're starting to think about the next thing when they get out. And so there is a lot of stuff about crafts and a lot of things, mm. a lot of books about self-improvement. I think a lot of people, especially recently, have an idea of prisons that's really informed by pop culture, like um, Orange is the New Black. Um, do you feel like people have at all an accurate representation of what it's like in there? Of course, I, I had that experience where I was thinking, exactly, well, Orange is the New Black, and then I walk in, and, and um, as a, a former, um, as my predecessor at this branch actually said, you know, they all look like a bunch of soccer moms. <laughs> so, because oh. people are wearing their own clothing, yeah. they're just chill, um, it's... Yeah, and the minimum unit is, um, you, know, you know, the unit has a sort of a common area because, again, it's a low security area, so there's, there is a common area. They actually have, uh, yeah, you know, they have fish tank and there's, um, you know, exercise equipment and uh, some, there's, some, there's a small library there. To bring it back to the true crime for a minute, I find this so interesting um, because... It really shows that we don't know what goes on in prisons. We don't know the lives and stories of every person who's being sent there. You kind of get an idea if you only listen to true crime. And because it's becoming increasingly popular, I wonder how that's shaping people's perceptions of jails and prisoners. It's, uh, it's a lot different than these dramatizations that were presented in the media. And that, that kind of swings both ways, too. And I, I sort of remind myself of this whenever I go in and with the services we provide is that Whatever, and, I, and I'm very intentional about making sure I don't know anything about what the particular, or what a particular inmate has done to get them in there, because I don't feel that that's relevant to what I 
to the services we provide. That's my personal view. And it is important to remember that inmates, the inmates there are there for a reason. Nice. And, and they're not your friends. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, you know, be friendly, of course, obviously, be professional, be friendly. You do have to be a little bit guarded. You have right. to be conscious of that, that even though I, you might get along with somebody, um, there is that barrier, there is that line. So I just want to wrap up by sort of going back to just your general role as a community librarian and your training as a librarian in the context of true crime. Um, I started noticing this with the podcast Serial. A lot of conversation was taking place online. So there was a lot of Reddit threads, a lot of think pieces. And it seems now like anything to do with true crime sparks this sort of huge online discussion. And um, as library professionals, we like to think that there are certain places you go for author like authoritative information, and there's other places you shouldn't trust as much. Um, I wonder, though, if with something like true crime that kind of is not going to follow the same pattern because a new development can happen. You can get um, insider information that would appear online that's not going to make it into a book as quickly. So I just wonder what you think about that as an information professional. It's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think where you have sometimes you know, have cases where there, the information is constantly changing, like, yeah. I mean, or cases that never closed, like, I don't know, something like John Bonet Ramsey, where that mm -hmm. was, that happened something like 25 years ago, and it's still never been solved. Some people say it's the dad, some people are absolutely adamant that it was the mom, and you know, and the brother, and there's all sorts of theories out there, but nobody really knows, and because the case was botched so badly. Um, sure, I mean, you know, and, and I think that's part of our, I mean, that goes into our sort of into uh, our weeding procedures, making sure that what we, the information we have is accurate and current, and if new information does come out, that we're that we're reflecting that in our collection. Um, uh, yeah, but I think I think as far as information seeking, you know, I mean, in the age of fake news and everything, you know, we do have to be conscious of, uh, you know, where the information if if someone is access trying to access some sort of true crime, like whether we're look, you know, the information that we're accessing, whether it's transcripts or. Uh, you know, court transcripts or something versus, like you said, a Reddit page. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and just making sure that we're using our critical thinking skills, but also um, hopefully teaching that to the people that are seeking information, um, especially if it's especially if it's younger people. I think you know, teens, um, because they're still developing those skills for information seeking and you know, being able to evaluate a website and going, you know, again, like, is this an official document? Is this is it you know, is it something that's gone through an editing process, like a newspaper article or a database? Uh, article, or is it just a blog that somebody put up? Um, you know, and certainly with, you know, there's a number of conspiracy theories. The higher profile a case might be, the more mm -hmm. the more information, quote unquote, information you, yeah. you have out there. Um, you know, and just it's, but it is important to make sure we're using those critical thinking skills as librarians, and that we're modeling that for our our, our patrons. And we like to finish um, interviews by asking for book recommendations. True crime. Well, I, it's not a book, but uh, it's a podcast, actually, that I'm listening to. It's called My Favorite Murder. I, was, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I, the reason I heard about My Favorite Murder was from the Cracked podcast, uh, which is also a really good one, too. They cover a lot of different information. A lot, some of it's pop culture, some of it's about politics, um, and sometimes they'll talk about true crime. That was Amanda discussing the information-seeking behaviors of the inmates served by the Edmonton Public Library here on Shout for Libraries on CJSR. If you're just tuning in, we are Shout for Libraries on CJSR. This month, we're starting a new segment, a reference desk where our team of crack librarians answers any questions you might have. 
case you don't know, one of the core skills for librarians is reference services, where library staff help people find answers to burning questions or help point them to resources they're interested in. With me now is MLIS student Chris Joseph, who's found a question to start us off. Hi, Jesse. I ran across a question posted to Reddit just after Christmas, and I thought it would be a great one to tackle. This was posted by a user named Cargall1. I found this awesome-looking clothing set from a store called Live Streetwear Company, but it seems like the price is too good to be true. Is it a scam? Has anyone used it and found it to be reliable? I'm trying to surprise my boyfriend with the outfit after Christmas and would appreciate any help. I like this question because it touches on something we all struggle with these days. The whole, I found a thing on the internet and I'm not sure if it's real. And in this case, since there may be money involved, it's good to be skeptical. So, what do we know about the website itself? Well, it's at livestreetwear.co, and at first glance, it looks totally legit. Yeah, it's a typical online shopping site. They have some nice photos, men's and women's clothing. It's all categorized. Seems pretty typical and up-to-date. I agree. But if you scratch the surface, you might have some more questions. So at the bottom of the site, it says they're powered by Shopify. Have you ever heard of a company called Squarespace? Yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, it's a service for creating websites. You sign up, pay a monthly fee, and you get easy tools and templates for creating a nice site. Exactly. Shopify does exactly the same thing, but it specializes in online stores. So this site looks really good, but since they use Shopify, it's probably based on a pre-existing template. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just evidence. The first real problem I find is actually in the bottom of the page. So why there? Well, most sites put all of their fine print down at the bottom of the site. So it's a great place to start if you're trying to figure out how trustworthy a site is. It works for shopping sites, but it's also a great tip for online news sites and other sources you might be looking at. So what did you see there? That's my first red flag. They have an About Us link down there. And when you click it, you get a page with some Q&A, an email address, a Twitter account, but no phone number and no mailing address of any kind. So if I order something from these folks and something goes wrong, I can't call them and I have no idea where they're located. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Not really, but the lack of a phone number is a little concerning. I mean, most major online shopping sites at least have a toll-free number of some kind. Uh, But you're right, it's not enough. So the next question I would have is related to the reputation of the company. What are other people saying about them? Well, they have some reviews on their site. Yeah, but I don't trust those necessarily because they're not independent. I'd be interested in seeing what other people have said about the company, and here's where more red flags start to show up. Oh? Yeah. If you do a Google search, just a simple one for live streetwear reviews, you find their Facebook page, their Twitter account, but almost no mentions of the company from any other source but themselves. And there are links to their YouTube channel, and they've posted some videos, and the videos have low view counts, and a bunch of them have comments underneath saying that the site is a scam. Ouch. While we've been talking, I went to Reddit and searched for Live Streetwear there, just using their basic search bar. Yeah, Reddit's a great place to look. I mean, it's a huge online community of very opinionated people, and if anybody else has had an experience with Live Streetwear, they'll post it there for sure. I found an old discussion there about the company. Nothing screams scam, but there are a few comments saying that the merchandise is cheap replicas and not the real thing. So where does this all leave us? I think the original poster was on the right track from the start. I mean, something made Cargill One think this seems too good to be true, and I think that's a good gut instinct. Uh, as for everything else, uh, the lack of contact information on the website, the lack of independent reviews for their products, uh, possible sale of knockoffs and replicas, and the lack of any real like digital trail for the company leads me to suggest that Cargill One should probably keep looking for a deal and not spend any money with live streetwear. Well, sounds like reasonable advice to me. And there we have it. 
If you have a different view on the trustworthiness of live streetwear, we'd love to hear about it. And if you think that this segment is interesting and want to submit a question for us to investigate, drop us a line. You can contact us on Facebook and Twitter at Shout for Libraries. Thanks, Chris. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to our guests, Jonathan and Mike, and a special thanks to all our contributors, including Anoop Harihan, who composed our theme music. If you want more information on true crime, don't forget to go check out our Facebook page for links to the resources recommended by our interviewees. Send us your thoughts on Facebook or check us out on Twitter at Shout for Libraries. That is Shout and the number four, Libraries. Thanks for listening along. This has been Larissa. And Rachel. And we have been your hosts for this half hour of Library Radio. Catch us next month on next episode of Shout for Libraries. Libraries.